0: Uh, We have uh, entered into the seventh trumpet uh, judgment, and uh, we are beginning now, the, or we're into the second half of the tribulation period, sometimes referred to as the Great Tribulation. Um, Up until the middle of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, the Antichrist has come on the scene as the Savior of the world. He comes as the Messiah. He uh, has a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, restores uh, worship in the temple, uh, sets himself up as the Messiah. And at the end of three and a half years, we find the events of chapter 12 taking place. We spent some time last week speaking about the fact that there was war in heaven between Michael the archangel and the dragon, and uh, that Satan was cast out of heaven finally uh, where he no longer will have access at that point back into heaven. He's cast down to the earth. And that brings us down around verse number uh, 9, and we'll start there and move on through the chapter. Uh, some of this we started dealing with at the end of last week, so I'm not going to uh, prolong that. We're going to brush over it just by way of review, uh, maybe say an extra uh, word or two about it, and then we'll move on and get into uh, chapter number 13, Lord willing, tonight. Uh, In chapter 9, the Bible says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast now, which accused them before our God day and night. And so apparently Satan had had this, uh, this... task of accusing the brethren and still does to this day until this moment of time happens where daily he is accusing the brethren uh, before God and trying to uh, lay blame, uh, even those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, to lay blame on them why God should uh, condemn them still. And aren't you glad we have a surety, uh, a guarantor, if you will, a uh, one that is responsible for our salvation, that stands between us and God. He is our advocate. He is our intercessor. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though we sin still, even though the old nature sometimes will uh, will uh, do things that the Satan will certainly have an argument, uh, Jesus stands forward before God and says, I've already paid it. It's already paid. And uh, I'm thankful that, that we have a Savior like that. Uh, but that's what Satan's doing at this time. Verse number 9, according to verse number 9, it says day, day and night that he does this. He's accusing the brethren. And verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Now, uh, I'm sorry, uh, where I read verse 10. Verse number 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. And I did, we, we spent a good deal of time on that last week. I'm not going to re preach or re teach that one. But uh, just by way of reminder that. Uh, I, I've heard people use the term and the phrase, and I understand what they're saying by it. Um, uh, I claim the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to get victory in this area of my life. Um, and I'm thankful that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, does give us power uh, over sin. It gives us a way of escape. It gives us an opportunity to avoid sin. Um, but notice there was other other things that the Bible says that were used to overcome Satan as well. Not just the fact that we were saved and by the blood of the Lamb. It is the blood of the Lamb that gives us the strength and the right and the power to do the other two. But the other two are, by the word of their testimony, there was a consecration in their heart and in their mind to live a life that, that portrayed a testimony reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was, If you read the Apostle Paul's uh, epistles, Quite often, you will find the struggle and the battle he has. And we look at him as one of the great writers and great Christians of the, of the New Testament. We look at the struggle, the daily struggle that he had with his sin nature. And oftentimes, he uses expressions like bringing his thoughts into captivity. He had to wrestle, uh, his, wrangle his thoughts into captivity. Uh, the idea that he would buffet his body daily, meaning the, the appetites of the body. Uh, the, the fleshly desires, he would buffet those. Uh, he would he would he would push through. He would purpose in his heart, uh, and he would he would tell you if he could stand here today, he would tell you. Uh, no matter how hard he tried, there were still things he knew he should have done that he didn't do. There were still things he knew he shouldn't have done that he did do, and he would tell you today if he could stand here, I'm sure as he did before uh, he left this world, he would get to the end of his ministry and said. Out of all the sinners I know, he said, I am the chiefest of sinners. And so Paul understood there was a struggle that took place in the the old nature and the new nature. And so for us to just simply uh, verbalize or to say the sentence, I claim the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then expect that statement to give us victory over sin, there needs to be some commitment in our hearts and our lives too. There needs to be some purposing in our hearts not to defile ourselves with the king's meat. Uh, there needs to be that consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ, that surrender to Him, that yielding of my flesh and my nature. And so we spoke about that last week. If you're not careful, we're going to preach it here, but um, but it's good that we're reminded of this because I think sometimes we over, we try to uh, and and don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying here that you overcome sin by your own flesh strength. We must have the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. I'm not I'm not minimizing that. But sometimes we think just by saying the sentence that that's all we need to do. But there needs to be a commitment in our hearts. There needs to be a a diligence, a fervency of holy living and righteous living, a purposing in our hearts um, to bring those things, uh, those fleshly desires into captivity. The Bible says, and they loved not their lives unto death. And so not only were they they, um, living this life of a testimony and purposing their hearts, but they did so... Consistently and steadfastly. They weren't wishy washy. They didn't claim to make a stand one way and then live in a way that was counterproductive to what they were saying. Uh, They were consistent. No matter the cost, they were steadfast. That's a hard statement to say in our lives, isn't it? It's an easy concept to understand, it's a very difficult one to practice. To say that I am willing to do what's right because it's right, no matter the cost. There was a song years ago uh, that was entitled, Whatever it takes to be more like you, that's what I'll be willing to do. I'll trade sunshine for rain, laughter for pain. That's what I'll be willing to do. If you think about singing the words of that song, you're making a commitment to God. And those are things that when we when we commit those things to the Lord, we need to have a steadfastness in them. I think there's a lot of us that love the idea of being steadfast. We don't so much love the cost of being steadfast. And we, amen, and we say, yes, I want to be steadfast. And we come to altars and we say, Lord, I want to be steadfast. And we're in love with the thought. And then the price begins to become realized. And if we're not careful, we'll lose it. We'll we'll neglect it. we'll, We'll turn from it. And we will allow compromise to creep in because we're not willing to pay the price. These folks overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony and the fact that they loved not their lives, even unto death, did not matter what cost came. And, and they're getting ready. you got to understand the impact of that statement in light of what we're getting ready to read, the context of the book we're getting ready to read. The, the tribulation that comes from this point forward is so great towards the nation of Israel and Christians as a whole during that part of the tribulation period. For them to make a statement like this, even unto death, Uh, that's a statement that they do not make lightly. But it is something they're committed to. Now look in verse number 12. The Bible says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, and having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. There's an awful lot in verse 12. I'm going to give them to you. uh, Pretty much one point at a time. The natural response to Satan being cast out of heaven finally once and for all. He's no longer standing there accusing the brethren. The natural response to that for those that are saved is rejoicing. Those in the heavens and those that reside in the heavens, there is rejoicing that takes place here, and he speaks of that in verse 12. He says, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. But theres they're not the only ones that have to, to, to be impacted by this thing. There is rejoicing for those that are in heaven and those that are going to live there, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. But notice he says, woe unto the, to the inhabitants of the earth. Because now Satan is getting ready to wreak havoc. And at this point, Satan becomes very, very angry. Uh, we talked a little bit about this at the very end of last week. But the Bible says this in the middle of verse 12, for the devil has come down unto you, notice this phrase, having great Wrath. Now, understand that from the beginning of of Satan's fall, Satan has always been angry at God. He's always been angry at those that choose to do right by God and to follow God. Uh, He has always hated them. Jesus even spoke of that in His earthly ministry. He said, they've hated Me, they will hate you too. And the idea that Satan has never been pleased. But this is a point where the anger that he has had up to this point is mild in comparison to what he has whipped up into a frenzy of on this point. Because he understands that when this event happens, where he's cast out of heaven, the Bible tells us here in verse 12, that the reason he's so full of anger, this great wrath, is because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. He knows the end is near. I don't know if we realize this or not, but Satan knows Scripture probably better than you and I do. He knows what's written. He knows that there's not been a prophecy yet given in Scripture that has not been completely and absolutely fulfilled. And He knows that when this moment in time happens, He has but a short time. And boy, does He get angry. Look what it says here in verse number 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, that's the event that he's angry over, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man, which we know that to be, the nation of Israel, he looks at Israel with absolute hatred because they're the ones in his eyes that have foiled his plan to keep men in his control. They're the ones responsible for bringing the Redeemer of mankind. And because of that, he is angry at them. He can't take it out on Christ because Christ has already ascended back to the Father now. So He takes it out on the nation of Israel, the ones that were that were the ones that brought forth the Christ child. Look in verse number 14. And to the women were, women were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Okay, so uh, notice here we've got... Uh, We're still referring here to the dragon. He uses the term serpent here. It's okay to use them interchangeably because John does in verse number 9. He says, and the great dragon uh, was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. So it's okay to use them interchangeably. The Bible does, and I don't think we're adding or taking away from Scripture to do that. Uh, So understand we're not speaking of two different characters at this point. It's still the dragon here this serpent uh that was cast out and so this serpent is uh, is angry uh he comes after uh this woman and according to verse number 14 we find a couple of interesting things uh we find that uh the nation of Israel is supernaturally aided to escape the wrath of the dragon now these would be the ones uh personally i believe that uh, at this point in the tribulation, have come to realize that God is or that Christ is the true Messiah. They have put their faith in Him and trusted Him, and uh, so they are divinely aided by God to flee into the desert. The Bible talks about this that uh, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. God provides this to them. Uh, there's a phrase that's used here uh, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished. So again, we find that in this wilderness, uh, that there is a supernatural nourishing or provision for protection of the nation of Israel. You say, well, thats that, I don't know if I can tr- I can believe that. Well, is there another point in Scripture that we can remember that taking place? Is there another time maybe that the nation of Israel was in the wilderness and God defended them and provided for them and nourished them? And not just for a few years, but how long? Forty years, didn't he? Not too far-fetched to realize God can do this again. And he does so here. He, he He takes care of them. He nourishes them. Now, I don't know how he's going to do it. It may be by manna and water from rocks again. I don't know. Uh, all I know is that they will be nourished in the wilderness. And it will be a provision that God intentionally and supernaturally does for them. And then it, notice that it says this, that the length of time that this... Fleeing of Israel into the wilderness is going to be is, it refers to here as a, an expression that says a time, singular, and times, plural, meaning two or more, and half a time from the face of the serpent. Now, most people in prophecy understand this particular phrase to refer to a year as the time, two years as the times, and then, of course, a half a time being a half a year, or that would be three and a half years and fits the context of uh, not only the book and the time frame of the book, uh, but also fits the the context of that verbiage that's used here. So when it speaks of a time, times, and half a time, don't scratch your head and wonder, what is he talking about here? He's talking about three and a half years this is going to take place. Specifically, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, this great tribulation. Again, the the middle of the tribulation is when the Antichrist, this dragon, gets so angry At Israel. So worked up at Israel. He realizes his time is short. Uh, So he starts pursuing them or anyone that names the name of Christ. And uh, he gives Israel protection in the wilderness. He does this for three and a half years and nourishes them. In verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Uh, we're going to see this phrase a couple of times in Revelation. Uh, this could be a, a reference to literal flood, a literal water that he's using, trying to, to flood them out and drown them. It is quite possible because this word flood is used several times in the book of Revelation to represent. Uh, large, vast amounts of people or or multitudes. Um, You say, which one is it? Well, the answer to that is it really doesn't matter if it's literal or or spiritual. And if God wanted it to be clearer than that to us, he would have made it clearer to us. Because the emphasis is not so much uh, the fact of what the instrument is that the Antichrist uses to try to wipe out Israel. The, the, the point of the verse is God's protection. And He does so supernaturally. Notice in verse 15 that whether it's the, the flood of waters or whether it's the flood of multitudes, and meaning large armies that are coming after them, either one of those would still fit the bill of what God is going to do in verse number 15 and verse number 16. Because the Bible says, "...and the earth..." Helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So, whether it is him commanding troops, and that meaning what's coming out of his mouth, or whether there is a literal opening of his mouth and vast amounts of water coming out, um, it does not matter which is, is the case. What matters here is God's divine protection for Israel. He uses nature itself to overcome the things that the Antichrist is going to try to use to destroy Israel at this point, the dragon. And the Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so he spends the rest three and a half years seeking out any of the Jews that he can find, even if it's just one or two here or there. He's trying to find them. He's trying to wipe them out. And he's so angry at them, he, he, gets, he gets satisfaction out of... Uh, no. You know, I don't even want to say that, because I don't even think the devil gets satisfaction. I think, we, I think he's bent on destroying the Jews, but even when it happens, I don't think he's satisfied. There's still that insatiable desire of hatred towards God that he cont- continues to persecute the Jews. And those, notice he uses the phrase here, that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so this last half of the tribulation period, uh, those that have the mark of the beast, they're probably going to live okay politically and, and as far as uh, persecution-wise. There's going to be some great pestilences and things that are going to be difficult for them. But they're going to probably live okay for a little while uh, under this regime. Look in verse uh, chapter 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. So here's another character that is spoken of. This is a beast that is rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, and ten horns upon his head, and ten crowns upon his heads, and uh, the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth uh, as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And uh, again, we find here that uh, this is someone that is empowered by uh, Satan himself. There is extreme similarities that are drawn between this particular beast and the dragon himself. If you look at the description that's given, uh, I believe it's in chapter, uh, chapter 12, early part of chapter 12, I think around verse number 9 or so, um, you'll find that there is a description given uh, of the dragon that, that very, very closely resembles the same description here. Some people believe that this is just uh, a reiteration of the devil himself empowering, that this is kind of a, uh, one of those times where it has gone forward in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. It comes back and starts filling in some more information and is just referring here to a similar character, uh, meaning the Antichrist. Uh, but suffice to say this, that this beast that comes out of the sea Uh, is going to have um, several things that are going to be um, noteworthy of him. It says, first of all, that he's going to have seven heads. And uh, let me see, I think I was going to bring something else out, but I'm going to... No, I think we're okay on that. Uh, It says here that he's going to have seven heads, um, and the Bible speaks of that. Uh, this is uh, in reference, I believe, because, uh, again, Revelation uses this analogy a little bit later, or this description later, as the power that he has governmentally. He's 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 the governmental power of the world, if you will, at this point. Uh, hold your place here, man. We're going to look at some Scriptures and show where uh, Revelation talks about these things. Look in Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And let's look in verse number 9. Revelation 17 and verse number 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour, uh, with the beast. And so we find in verse 12 that the ten horns here, referencing, uh, and these seven heads are dealing here, a lot of those symbolisms are dealing with the governmental authority or power that's given, um, with the seven heads, uh, being the ones that are empowered, uh, over the world to govern the world. Uh, so we believe that that's what that is re- in reference to, as it gives a description of him. The fact that he has ten horns uh, is is indicative of the uh, the cruelty or the, the the strength he has, even to commit injury or to. Uh, if you think about it, uh, look at look at the progressive movement of our day for a moment. We are we are taking criminals. I'm talking about criminals that are dangerous criminals and turning them loose within 24 hours without bail, and not prosecuting them. And, and the progressive mindset is, uh, oh, don't hurt them, don't hurt them, that's, you know, that's, that's not fair, it's, it's racism and all this, and you know, don't worry about this. this. This leader is going to come on the scene, and he's not going to be wishy-washy on things like that. He's going to have absolute authority. He's going to have the ability to put to death people instantly, at his, at his word if he needs to. Uh, we're going to find some of the persecution that's spoken of here is the fact that there are going to be many folks that trust in Christ that are going to be beheaded during the time of this great tribulation period for the cause of Christ. And uh, they're not going to make any bones about it. In fact, these will be, I believe, will be public spectacles. Um, I believe we see some of that in the death of the two witnesses that the world is almost gleefully watching as those that name the name of Christ are put to death similar to the Christians being martyred um, in the, uh, the theater there at Rome, uh, the Colosseum at Rome, uh, they would come as spectators and gleefully watch. And uh, I believe that they're going to see a return of this because the leader, this, this uh, beast out of the sea, is going to have this kind of cruelty about him. Then the ten horns, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the ten crowns that are on his horns uh, speak again of his, his sovereignty, his authority. The fact that he has names of blasphemy on his head, Uh, again, in reference to the Antichrist specifically, again, I I believe this is still referring uh, primarily to the Antichrist himself. Uh, some people may differ with me on this, but Daniel chapter 7 uh, in verse 21 and, and uh, the verses following deal with specifically the Antichrist, and he speaks to the fact uh, of the blasphemy that is on the uh, on the heads. And then also, if you will, hold your place here for a moment, and, and again, I have these references in the notes, and you're welcome to them. We do have copies in the back tonight if you want to take them home and uh, look up the Scriptures on them. Uh, but uh, let's look in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul deals with this also. Second Thessalonians chapter number 2 and verse number 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So that's dealing here with the Antichrist. That's who he's referring to. Who opposeth, in verse number 4, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And this is a blasphemous work of the Antichrist. Uh, that is taking place, and so again we have this blasphemy mentioned uh, in verse number uh, chapter thirteen and uh, verse number thir- uh, verse number one. Uh, then we find that he has he's described as le- uh, leopard like that he has uh, uh, he's like a leopard, uh, speaking of his agility, his speed, his charisma, perhaps even, uh, and then the uh, the feet like a bear. Uh, speaking of how ferocious he is, perhaps, and how powerful he is, the mouth of a lion. Of course, First Peter chapter five and verse eight says that the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. devour. And so, uh, this this beast out of the sea is empowered by Satan himself, the dragon. And I believe is referring here specifically to the Antichrist himself, the uh, the human leader. Now. Um, Personally, I believe that this is a human being that uh, is possessed, not just uh, influenced by, but I believe at this point is literally possessed by the very nature of Satan himself. That Satan comes in and possesses him. There are several things we know about the Antichrist. I'm going to take a few minutes to deal with that. And uh, So keep your Bibles handy. There are eight things that the Bible teaches us specifically that we absolutely know uh, will be uh, regarding the Antichrist. A lot of people say, who is the Antichrist going to be? The truth is we don't know. Uh, He could be alive already. He he may not be alive already. It may be another thousand years before Christ comes back. I sure hope not, but it could be. Uh, But uh, I will say that the times that we're seeing certainly seem to be lining up with the events of Revelation. So I think the time is getting very, very near. But there are several things we're going to see about the Antichrist. We're going to take a few moments to look at him and some of his attributes that are given in in Scripture. So uh, first of all, if you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter number 8. And uh, this may be a help to some of you. Again, a lot of people have asked me over the years, uh, well, who do you think the Antichrist is going to be? Uh, The real answer is we don't know. There are some things we know about him that we can certainly be aware of, and so we're going to look at those. Daniel chapter number 8. And uh, verse number 23, Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. There's one thing that is going to characterize, uh, one of the things that's going to characterize the Antichrist is he is going to be a man that men look to as a man of absolute intellect, Very, very bright, very smart. Daniel refers to him here that the people are going to uh, uh, look to him because he understands dark sentences. uh, Things that other normal men would would struggle with understanding the concept of. This man's going to be uh, very, very bright, very smart. He will be able to give answers. Um, You ever watch the White House uh, briefings? Any of you ever watch those every once in a while and get frustrated like I do? (laughs) Uh, they ask questions and they'll speak for four minutes on an answer and not even answer the question. This man's not going to be like that. This man, you ask him the question, he'll have the answer. He understand he's going to, he's going to be a brilliantly wisdom amount of wisdom. Uh, above all, uh, it's going to cause people to be convinced that he is the Messiah himself that's come to earth. Uh, this is how how smart he's going to be with with his understanding of dark sayings. Um, uh, look with me in Daniel chapter 9, just a couple pages over, in verse number 26. Daniel chapter 9, and verse number 26. <clears throat> and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, uh, this is not uh, referring to Christians. This is those that are following the devilish or the satanic power that is in existence during this time. And the people of the prince that shall come to destroy the city, and the sanctuary in the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war, uh, unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. This this crowd that's spoken of here in verse number twenty six, these people uh, of the prince that destroy the city, and the sanctuary, were people of the old Roman Empire. Um. The Bible speaks of the fact that this is the people that this person is going to come from. Uh, these are the people of the prince. And uh, the idea that uh, he will be from a country, I believe, that used to be part of the old Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, when it talks about the beast coming out of the, the, the waters, the, uh, out of the sea, some people say, well, uh, that could be a literal... Uh, interpretation, or again, a figurative interpretation, sea being oftentimes used as multitudes or vast amounts of people. Uh, But it could also be in reference to the Mediterranean Sea, quite possibly is. And some of the nations that border the Mediterranean Sea, so quite possibly the Antichrist uh, will be coming from one of those countries that are in existence today that used to be part of the old Roman Empire. Uh, because, again, he's he's the prince of this people that destroy the city. Uh, Let's look also at uh, Daniel chapter number 11, just over a couple more pages. Daniel chapter 11 and verse number 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This man is going to be an expert orator. He's going to have a way with words. That the Bible speaks of the fact he's going to be so good with his words that he's going to, uh, if, if the elect could be deceived, they would be deceived because of how, how his words are, the sweetness of his words. So he's going to be a great orator. He's going to be very, very smart. He's more than likely going to come from one of the countries that made up the old Roman Empire. Uh, He is a great, great orator. Look in Daniel chapter 11, verse number 37, down just a few verses. Neither shall he regard the God, notice this, capital G, O-D, the God of what? His fathers. He's going to be a Jew. Uh, He's going to rise up out of the Jewish people. Because, again, this is speaking here of the Antichrist, verse number 37. And he's not going to regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. And so he's going to rise up out of the Jewish nation, uh, according to that verse. Uh, Let's look at uh, uh, Revelation chapter 13. By the way, uh, he's going to have an unbelievable political power and prowess to him. Um, because the Bible speaks about the brevity of time, how quickly He is going to rise to power over all the earth. And so He's obviously going to have connections. He's going to have influence politically to where He can get leaders of state to come into agreement to follow Him. And so very, very strong political. Uh, Let's look also at Revelation 13 now. And uh, where we've been, and let's look down to verse 15. We're not quite there yet, but we're going to see again a little bit of a description of him. And he hath the power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast uh, should be killed. Uh, uh, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in the foreheads. And that no man may buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And so we find here that he is a great economist. He unites the world in one currency, one 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 means of buying and selling. Alright? So he's he's very sharp on this and supporter of things like this. Um Let's move on. I, I could say more on that, and we will as we, as we study a little bit more about the Antichrist a little bit later. Uh, time, time kind of limits us tonight, but we will deal with that and expand on that quite a bit more uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, look in Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 6, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 2. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him with a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. He's going to be a military might. He's going to be a military might. Uh, he's going to be a commander of commanders, very strong, iron-fisted uh, military strategist, if you will. All right. So he comes for to conquer, for conquering and to conquer. And then uh, lastly, let's look in Second Thessalonians chapter two one more time, and uh, we'll finish there. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter number. Did I say First Thessalonians? Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 4. Whoso opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called, or who, I'm sorry, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist, this is going to shock some of us, is going to be a highly religious person. He's going to be able to convince people that he is the Messiah. And he's going to set himself up in the temple. He's going to reestablish the temple worship. Of course, he's wanting that worship to be directed to him. But he is going to be very, very knowledgeable of religion and religious practices, especially of Old Testament practices. Um, There's a couple things to keep in mind uh, about the Antichrist. Number one, he can't appear until after the rapture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7-8 through eight, tell us very clearly about that. We will not be here when he comes on the scene. So if you're sitting here tonight saying, Boy, I, I hope I'm, I, I'm nervous now because I don't want this all to happen while I'm here. We will not be here when he comes on the scene. Uh, let me rephrase that. We will not be here when he comes into power. Okay? We may see him. We may not know him to be the Antichrist, but he may already be on the scene before we go. But he will not have risen to power at this point, nor will he have been able to accomplish any of these things that we spoke about prior to the rapture. Uh, the second thing uh, that we need to know is that the Antichrist does not is not known by the world to be the Antichrist until the middle of the tribulation period. Up until then, they think he's the Messiah. And so again, when... People start looking at that. They're not, we're not going to see some man rising to power and everybody look at him and say, oh, that must be the Antichrist. They're going to say, this could be the Messiah. Uh, because he's not really known. as He deceives the world uh, and is known as the Messiah until the middle of the tribulation period. And then the next thing uh, I want you to know about him and then we'll be done. Uh, he, he does not begin his reign of terror his reign of absolute persecution of, of the Christians until the middle of the tribulation period. Um, he actually is at peace with Israel the first three and a half years. The the tribulation that happens in the first three and a half years are not the Antichrist bringing wrath on the earth, but God bringing wrath on the earth. That there is a pestilence, there are things that are happening from natural things that, that God allows. He takes the Holy Spirit out. Um, I think Satan does... Uh, wreak havoc somewhat on the earth through those times because I think a lot of that happens from God just removing His hand, taking the Holy Spirit out uh, of, of the things that hold Satan from doing what he wants to do now. Uh, he's not completely gone because obviously people are still trusting Christ during the tribulation period. Uh, so He's not completely gone because He's doing His work in their hearts. But the restraining work that the Holy... And, and, and we need to understand this uh, I don't know if I have that that reference handy. It might be. Let me do, look at one verse real quick here. Second Thessalonians. Let me just see real quick here. Um, yeah, go to go to uh, Second Thessalonians chapter two for a minute. I, I think this is where I'm looking at. Yep. Okay. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's understand this. I, I did share this one other time, but I don't want you to miss this. I don't want it to be one of those minor points that we glossed over quickly or, or we didn't catch the first time through. Look in verse number 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The devastation of sin, the, the consequences of sin, the mystery of iniquity. It already is, is working in the world that, that we live in today. Only, look at what he says here, only he who now letteth, this mystery of iniquity that's now working, he's, he's the one that's hindering it now from, from being coming to fruition. He's going to be taken out. It says, he who letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. It's speaking here of the Holy Spirit. The word "leteth" is, is, we use it differently today. It has an exact opposite meaning today that it had in the Old English when the, when the King James translators wrote uh, our Bible. If you look at the Webster's 1828 dictionary of the word let, it means to hinder. Today we use it to mean allow, uh, exact opposite of what it used to mean. And so you need to understand that when it speaks of this, that this mystery of iniquity is already here. Satan is already, I mean, he, he could if, he, if, if the Holy Spirit tonight would take his hand off of hindering Satan to do what he wants to do in this world, this world would be in absolute devastation. You say, boy, our world is in a turmoil. Understand this. It'd be in far more turmoil if the Holy Spirit had just got out of the way and let Satan have had it. Right now, the Holy Spirit is the only thing that is holding him back from absolute devastation of the world. That's what's going to happen during that first three and a half years, where there's going to be pestilence, there's going to be famine, there's going to be uh, astronomical events, days are going to be short, and heat's going to be uh, terrible, food's going to be short, um, because the Holy Spirit's going to take his hand off and let Satan have his way. And that's that's what happens the first three and a half years. The second three and a half years, the, the Satan will the dragon will empower the sea out of the beast, uh, the, the beast the sea out of the beast, the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist. He's going to empower him, and uh, cause him to become angry and begin the persecution of those that are saved that name the name of Christ. And the last half of the tribulation period is going to be the Antichrist powered by Satan trying to do all that he can to destroy as many uh, Christians and to kill them uh, as he possibly can. And um, So anyway, I hope that will help clear some things up uh, with with regards to the Antichrist. If you're sitting here tonight saying, boy, I'm nervous now. What if he comes and we're still here? We won't be here when he comes to power. We won't be here when these things that he's going to do uh, are completed. All right? So I hope that will help you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. And Lord, as we study it, I pray that You would help give clarity, help us to understand it well, and to realize some of the things that are coming, coming to pass. And Lord, may those realizations help to stir our hearts and bring conviction to us to not only live rightly today and for us to be ready to meet You, If it were to happen tonight...